Welcome to WEHC 90.7 and you're tuning in once again and we hope that you're faithfully tuning in to She Walks with Sharon Bowers and Carly Blaylock where we talk about uh, women and our perspective roles and all kinds of other things through an intersectional feminist lens. Carly, I have to tell you this, in my PhD work, one thing that I've discovered, and I'm not going to try to change our show for today, but it's, I think it's something that maybe we want to talk about in the future, is I may have stumbled up on a concept that's called uh, intersectional womanist thought. And <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, womanist is really built on intersectionality. But the actual thought slash theory doesn't seem to be anywhere. When I was doing the research, I couldn't find that put together. You can find intersectional, you can find womanist, you can find womanist thought, you can find intersectional thought, but you cannot find intersectional womanist thought. Hmm. So, yeah. So anyway, that may be somewhere down the road that we talk about when we talk about the wonderful research that I've been doing on Soldier of Truth and all of that kind of stuff. But I just thought that was interesting because... From a womanist perspective, you know, we we say those things like womanist is to feminist as lavender is to purple. You know, we talk about how close they are. And yet when we start to link them together, they may not have ever been linked together. And I can see a need to, you know, for to coin a term such as that because it's so close together. Mm-hmm. We've been using all of our time to separate. I know I'm going off on a tangent, but it, it just is one of those things that I wanted to mention that maybe we could talk about later since we talk about it from an in- intersectional perspective. And I think on one of our shows recently, we talked about collective activism. And that's what got me thinking about this because, you know, the kinds of things that we do in the struggle, women in the struggle, a lot of them have been gained through collective action and collective activism. And so I think it's important for us to kind of maybe think about that and talk about that a little bit, especially during Women's History Month, uh, because it's often frowned upon. Anything collective or anything collaborative is often frowned upon in our patriarchal system of leadership. It's Mm -hmm. almost like you can't do that. And I think sometimes people think if you get together you're going to do more. And of course, we used to have an old adage back in the day in corporate that said, together, everyone achieves more success. That's what a team is. But I think there's some fear in that, people coming together. I definitely think that you're correct on that. You know, we, in in America, in the Western world, we definitely have a very deep focus on the individual and the individual's ability to accomplish whatever they have set out to do and you know, very much focused on the individual and their goals and their, you know, ability. And that's, you know, part of the capitalistic system. That's part of, you know, just the system that we kind of live under. But that collaborative piece is really where a lot of power is. And it's funny, even talking to students, you know, students don't like group work. They don't like Mm -hmm. to work with other people. They want to do things on their own. And, you know, that is something that is, part of just, you know, kind of the system they've been raised in. And so unlearning that when you become an activist or, you know, kind of have to collaborate in the future on whatever is it's difficult to unlearn that for sure. Yeah. And and I, I mean, I hate group work too, but the reason why I hate group work is because I don't think everybody does what I believe is quote unquote, their fair share. Mm-hmm. So that's, I don't mind. I love working collaboratively and working with women and those kinds of things. But when you end up 
where people don't do their whatever their fair share is. That's what I think turns people off. It, for me, it's not so much I need to be the star. It's so much can can you do your part or will you benefit? And I guess when you get past that collective, when you, when you get to the collective, when you get past the individual, whatever contribution someone makes is adequate. So you're not judging it from a Western perspective mm -hmm. of percentages and all those things, because we all, as we said, from an equity perspective, we all start from different places. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it also, you know, you hear a lot of talk about the self-made man or the self-made woman, right? And there is no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. We all have people who have supported us and believed in us and you know, opportunities that have come our way, people took a chance on us and they didn't have to, right? And those sorts of things, like we as individuals are the result of collaborative and collective work. So when we think about, you know, when we talk about activism or we talk about, you know, fighting for equity and equality, there's not one person that is going to be able to do that. Now, we might have faces of certain movements, you know, people who have sort of stepped up into that leadership role, but they are supported by a vast network of other people. This is not a one woman or one man show, right? Yeah. And I think that whenever you have collective action or collective activism, collective whatever it is that you're doing, agitation, agency, all those kinds of words that I love to use, whenever you do that, it is an immediate attack on injust systems. You know, it collectively, I mean, I'm clergy and so y'all can think it's kind of corny, but we have a scripture, I don't even know where it is, but it says two are better than one. Because if one, I think it's a proverb, because if one falls down, the other is there to pick them up. And so I think collective activism or collective leadership or collaborative leadership or anything is so frightening to most people because it is a direct assault on an unjust system that says that this hierarchical, usually patriarchal, hierarchical leadership is the only way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've we talked about this when we talked about our leadership. We did our leadership series, right? It is not the only way. There are a million different ways to organize a organization or a workplace or whatever. Um, there are a million different ways to lead. And we did in that series explore how studies show that women tend to lead more collaboratively than men do um, when they are in leadership positions. But absolutely, I mean, there's a lot of different ways to organize things. And it doesn't always have to look like the kind of pyramid shape we think of where you've got one person at the top and then a couple people under that person and then more people under the other people. That's not always the way to organize things. And a lot of activist movements or a lot of organizations that are working for social justice and social change tend not to be organized like that um, because it it doesn't really work very well when you're talking about trying to advocate for change. And, and I think, you know, all of the quote unquote movements, protests, as you were saying, all of those have a collaborative effort. It's not just one person that says, I'm going to go to the streets right. and I'm going to make a change. It's usually a, we're going to go to the streets and we're going to make a change. We're going to make an inroad. We're going to stand together. We're going to stand collectively arm in arm. I think recently there was a celebration of the Pettus Bridge and, and I think maybe President Biden went down there and so others. But I can remember that visual from 
not only can I remember the dog, the water hose and the dogs and the billy sticks and all that, but one thing I can remember is the elbow enlockment and people walking in -hmm. protest, Mm -hmm. you know, locking their elbows and walking collectively to say this activism is all of us. It's not just one, it's all of us. And I think as women internationally and throughout the various nations, I think women, we have to kind of say we are in this together. And for so long, and I don't know if this is researchable, it may just be a, excuse me, a Bowersism, but for so long, you know, we've had that cats in a sack kind of way, crabs in a barrel, whatever you want to describe it. We've been pitted against one another to where it it appears that there cannot be more than one of us in any critical leadership, Mm -hmm. you know? So when you get to that, when you get one woman, that's enough. And everybody starts to act like that. Both the oppressed and the oppressors Mm -hmm. start to fall in line and act like, well, you've got that one and that's enough. It's never enough to, to only have a token. It's never enough. Right. Yeah. Um, 100%. And I think one of the big, in my mind, big examples from sort of recent history is the protests, the Black Lives Matter protests surrounding George Floyd's death. We saw people in Australia protesting. We saw people in the UK protesting. I mean, there were protests all over the world. Um, And because it wasn't just it was multi-layered that yes, they were standing in solidarity with the American protesters because this happened to happen in the United States, but they were also saying, you know, hey, look over here too, because we're not racially equity. You know, we don't have racial equality and equity here. You know, mm-hmm. this, you know, this is not just an American problem. This is a international problem. And so that I remember that being so powerful and, you know, bringing me to tears to see all of these protests happening all over the world. And I think that goes to your point to say, like, we have to think like that internationally for all of the social change and social justice that we're fighting for. And and I hope, Carly, we get to that place where we don't have to wait to a George Floyd or a Breonna Taylor or anything like that to take to the streets. I, I hope we see, you know, protest as a form of agitation and to be willing to do it. But what was interesting to me, and it always has been in this whole Black Lives Matters movement piece, that's a piece of my dissertation as well. And because it's spiritual and people like to say that the Black Lives Matters, because it wasn't by a preacher or Protestant clergy or anybody, like our people who weren't professing to be Christians or anything else, that it could not have been. But one thing that that I think is important for us to remember is that collective activism, that collective action behind such things as the Black Lives Matters. And the Black Lives Matters is, I don't know, a more spiritual movement that would try to reclaim what's being done to our children, our children's children, and our children even afar off. And so I think that's a good example that you brought up of that, that protest because it, it's diminished, in my opinion, because it's coming from a black woman or black women because you know even the civil rights movement is uh the civil rights movement you know was the impetus for the civil rights movement was black women but that wasn't who that wasn't who you saw you saw black men leading it and so with the black lives matter protests you did not see a black man rise to the occasion to be the leader. And so I think in some ways it was invalidated because it was not done. The movement of the protest was not being done by the right people, so to speak. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I also, you know, when we think about the Black Lives Matter movement, 
you think about key figures within that movement, but there's not really one figurehead, right? So when we think about civil rights, people think of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr., right? He was the figure for that movement. And you don't really have that with the Black Lives Matter movement. It was so much more collaborative and and there were so many groups within the movement itself that rose up and, you know, participated in the um, the protesting and, you know, fighting for, for justice, that it was such a collaborative movement, which I think gave it a lot of power. But like you said, it also, to certain people, invalidated some of it as well. Oh, yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, the fact that it was a more decentralized movement, that was scary to the powers that be because, you know, you expect that figurehead, that leader, and you expect that figurehead or that leader to be male because that's what our society has always said. We don't celebrate, you know, Nanny of the Maroons. We don't celebrate... Uh, you know, the Fannie Lou Hamers, we don't celebrate the women that put their life on the line to bring about change. We celebrate the men that put their life on the line to bring about change. And primarily, we celebrate Protestant Christian men who put their put their name out there in order to do that. So the decentralized piece of the Black Lives Matter movement and just the fact that it was a social movement. And, and also, Carly, I think what it brought to, to light was scary for the dominant group because it it talked about uh, racism and discrimination and in, inequality and all the things that are going on in this world that we say is so great. It highlighted that none of that is like you see that this is a, a mirage or this is a smoking mirror or this is something because it's not really what you see. And I think that was a concern, especially because it went to issues around police brutality and 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 just all of our systems that keep so many things in place it was it was tearing i've got this new thing carly and you can tell me what you think about it but i have to present this weekend at a conference with some people who are looking at the united methodist church and kind of moving the united methodist church forward around human sexuality and so i have to do the part about the united methodist church and and race but one of the things that has come to me, and and I'd love for you to respond to this and any of the, the viewers as well, but I think I have these great ideas. I know y'all don't, but I do. But I'm thinking that what we're doing in this anti-racism, in all of these protests and all these movements is we're doing something really simple. What we're trying to do is poke holes in white solidarity. What do you think? I 100% agree. <laughs> And I think what, you know, you talked about the Black Lives Matter movement being challenging to the status quo in the system and, you know, very scary to um, white supremacy, 100%, right? Because there, the movement itself was intersectional. We had, you know, there were queer allies, there were white allies, there were allies across the board. And I think it that's what one of the things that made it so powerful and so scary. And you're exactly right. I mean, the this the conversations that have come up that people are having much more broadly now around anti-racism is scary to the status quo. It's scary to the system of white supremacy that is so normalized that a lot of people don't even realize that systems that they're participating in are white supremacist, right? And it is, it, it, that is what we're doing. We're poking holes in that system by talking about what needs to be discussed, by bringing up the issues that are facing the Black community in America. And all of that is just 
is powerful. And the more that we do poke those holes and the more that we do continue to like not shut up about it, right? The better off and the more power that we're going to have overall. Yeah. And I'm always trying to find ways that can get people to have a visual to see. And so when we talk about white supremacy, when we talk about Christian nationalism, when we talk about these kinds of things, we're really talking about solidarity. When we're talking about these systems that are in place, that have been in place since way back when, you know, we start talking about the doctrine of discovery, all these kinds of things. We're not talking about those today, Carly, but all these things that we have to talk about every day when we talk about intersectional uh, challenges is that it really is trying to pierce this solidarity. And even if we're never able to dismantle or deconstruct systems of racism and sexism and classism and heteronormativity and all those other things, even if we can never really disrupt them because they're, well, deconstruct them because there are systems that are permanent, I do believe we can put holes in them. And it's like a dike. You know, if we put enough holes in it and it starts to, you know, the good stuff starts to come through like the water would come through if we were trying to do that. I think we're so much better because then it's fragmented and it has an opportunity to get bigger and larger holes in it because white solidarity is what supports these systems and and keeps us from having being able to change. I 100% agree. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, (laughs) no I think you're exactly right and I think that's where you know going back to sort of our topic um, of collaboration right that is why that is so important because you know if you think about a group of 10 individuals you know think about all of the impact those 10 people have just in their day-to-day lives Mm -hmm. their workplaces their friends their families where they go where they're present and if they're all fighting for you know anti-racism and they're all fighting for racial equity, you know, that is a lot of voices and a lot of impact that those 10 people can have. And I think it's important. And I think the Black Lives Matter uh, protests in particular showed this, that, you know, it's not enough for allies, whether they're white allies or queer allies or whoever, to be silent or to say, we support you. You all go, you know, do your march. We support you. No, we have got to be right there, you know, fighting for it in our everyday lives and talking about it just as much as our black and brown brothers and sisters. Like we have to, that we don't have, you can't stay silent anymore. Yeah. And, and I think we see all the time when issues that, that face predominantly black and brown sisters and brothers and siblings, when it starts to move into the majority of white people it all changes. I mean, we're looking at it and this is a little off, but I mean, we're looking at it through this whole uh, movement, you know, when it was crack cocaine, who cared? It was a war on drugs and we were going to do everything that we possibly could to do it. But now that we're talking about uh, what's happening to um, our, um, uh, our white brothers and sisters from the perspective of drugs, now it's a crisis and we need to do something about it and everything needs to stop. Everything needs to change. So I know that's a little off, but I'm just hoping that we will start to see that uh, collective action, collective activism, large social movements, really, it really does make a difference. And and I think that's the greatest fear because if you can think about it, the Black Lives Matter protests, you brought that up, but I mean, it's changed how people saw it in 2018. People saw it as divisive. People saw it as horrible, that it had no value. And there, I believe there are reasons why, because look who's leading that movement. 
black women who in our society get no respect. I mean, people might take issue with that, but black women get the least amount of respect. And I think it was, you know, from the beginning, when you start to look at Rousseau and all the other people, black people weren't considered citizens, but definitely black women weren't considered citizens. So when you see this starting the movement, but, you know, in 2019, 2020, and even now, as you were saying earlier, it is viewed totally different. It's not viewed with the same kind of disdain that it was when it started. I mean, when it started, it was like, do something about these people or they're going to destroy every town that you have. Yeah, I mean, and we see that with a lot of things. Um, the fear comes first, always. The reactionary, you know, we have to do something. We have to do something about this. And then now you see people, you know, companies, national corporations using Black Lives Matter as, you know, in their advertising, right? Mm -hmm. And it's it's just interesting to see how how that happens, right? Oh, a lot of people are on board with this. Okay, we can use this, right? Yeah. Instead of like, okay, well, we're going to act out of fear until we realize how many people are on board. And then now we're going to use it to sell you soda. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay, great. We've missed the entire point of this movement, but all right. Well, I think that's uh capitalism, you know, yeah. and that that we don't talk much about that, but I think that that's part of and power that goes with it is part of what what we can if we can find something to use to advance our agenda, we will do that. And you know, so it's more palatable now because some people have been able to find things to ways to use it to advance their agenda like you said even if it's sodas <laughs> yeah well i think you know when we, we're talking about this collective activism and we're talking about uh you know in our culture what that looks like and i think some people might see it as a, a liberal and i think liberal scares you know when we start talking about liberal things people just to use that word sometimes people are afraid and so I think it's important for us to, we we started out talking about it from a woman's perspective and from an International Women's Day. And that's where the power of the movement is. Carly, do you remember years ago, I think it was Liberia, and I cannot think of the woman's name, Boa, somebody Boa, I think was her name. She actually was in the States and did a master's degree at uh, Eastern Mennonite University, but she started that whole movement in Liberia where women came together from every background, Christians, Muslims, you know, mm -hmm. Hindus, everybody came together. They all wore white and they stopped the war. Yeah. The, the civil war that was going on. I can't remember the name of that, but that reminds me of how important collective activism is, is that, you know, you can work together to make change and to bring change immediately. I can't think, oh, I can't think of her name anyway. Maybe I'll think of it by our next show so I can tell anybody who wants to go and find it. But she wrote a book. But anyway, that was to me was an example of collective activism and how important it is and how it could change systems and even cause war to start, you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah, it's so powerful. And I think we have a better understanding within the social justice community, <laughs> I guess, if you could call us that, people that care about social justice. Yeah. Um, tend to have a better understanding now of the importance of that collaboration and being a collective. And there's less fighting over whose message is more important. Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. still that, but it's it's less so, I think. And maybe social media has kind of helped with that because everybody's able to sort of get their voice out there. But I think we've sort of realized that 
you know, a, a rising tide lifts all ships, right? We are helping each other and we're all fighting the same oppressors. We're just doing it from different points of view. So if we all work together, you know, we're able to be much more effective. And, and I think our, our people, our young people, are people who have evolved from the, the oppression of racism, the more people who are now doing anti-racism or anti any of the isms, uh, you know, I think they're smarter now. They're more knowledgeable. They're reading. They've been exposed more to the other through some of the fights of early, you know, civil rights movements and those kinds of things. And And I think you just cannot fool as many people into holding on to that we are better than them. So I think the collective activism that we're now seeing is multi-ethnic and multi-culture because people really are realizing that we are all in this together. And and if there's going to be a change, it, it's going to be a change that's going to make an effect for the whole group. And so women from a collective activism perspective. That's why we have this whole thing about black feminists and white feminists and womanist. And, and I'm not saying that it's not necessary because there are differences. We we see those every day. But after we look at our difference, maybe we can come back together and kind of, you know, continue this collective action that that can help to uh, that we can work together to achieve a common goal. And in the case of women, international women, where we started with this a couple of shows ago, you know, the theme was to embrace equity. So it's going to take all of us to look at that together and to do away with any conflicting interests that we might have and to come together to try to see how can we do this uh, for the common good. And that's the problem is getting, getting to a common good. And yeah, and that's the the piece that makes it collaborative and collective, right? Um, and even when you look at like collaborative work or whatever, it's that there's a common goal always, because if yeah. there's not, then you're not working collaboratively. Right. Um, so, and I think we have been, we do have some broad common goals, right? We are, you know, if you're anti-racist, doing anti-racist work, then you are fighting against the, you know, white supremacist system, right? That is a very broad goal and you will have lots of little goals underneath that, but that is the broad overarching goal. And I think when we talk about being collaborative, we've all realized that systemic oppression is sort of the thing that needs to be dismantled and that is our common goal. And although that is an incredibly broad goal, we realize that by helping each other out and, you know, dismantling that system, that we're all helping ourselves to achieve the goal that is important to us. Yeah, I think in economics, they have something, they call it the collective good. And uh, when they talk about it, they say that that collective good is one that is economically infeasible to exclude people from using. And, and I think that we might could transfer some of that to this collective action and activism is that when we see that these systems of oppression, you know, is that if we don't get together and get rid of them or dismantle, deconstruct, poke holes in their solidarity, et cetera. If we don't get together and do that, then we're in big trouble because mm -hmm. it's affecting all of us. One of the things that we're working on right now is trying to bring the proponents, uh, the people for the LGBTQ plus group together and the people for racial inclusion together because we've been fighting separate battles, but we've got to look and try to figure out how to find the collective good. Mm -hmm. And I think women activism 
women uh, in collective activism or collective action. That's that's our goal is to see where do we find the things, the places, the spaces that it is it's not feasible for us not to work together because mm-hmm. nobody's benefiting. If we're apart, if we're separate. No one's benefiting. And so we've got to figure that out. Yes. And, you know, being actively separated is part of the way that the system works, right? Is let's separate, like you said, cats in a bag, right? Mm-hmm. Let's pit everybody against each other. And then they're not going to be as strong. They're going to be too distracted fighting each other to be able to fight us, right? So that is a tactic that is very much employed. And I think, like you said earlier, you know, especially the young people now have become too smart for that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. We 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 have to have a uh, a framework for us to work together. And they're figuring that out because they're realizing that with these intersection identities, that if we don't fight for the oppression of one, then uh, we're continuing the oppression of all. Right. So I think, I think they see that where before we didn't see that either. We didn't have enough information. Technology wasn't as good. I don't know what the reason was, but I just think nowadays people see that we're in this together and that we are better together than we can ever be apart. Absolutely. As usual, we are at the end of our time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, it was really fun to explore that collective uh, organizing piece. I think it's something we can definitely continue to explore. It is so powerful and it's a great way to think about your organizing and your activism if that is something that is important to you. We really appreciate you all being with us. We're going to talk a little bit about creating inclusive spaces um, in our show next week and some action items that you all can take with you to be able to use and implement. So we're really excited to talk about that with you all next week. But thank you so much for joining us. Bye, everybody.